Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to look again at the so-called war on terror. Last week, we talked about the evolution of Al-Qaeda and ISIS over the past 20 years. This week, though, we're going to focus more on Washington. We're going to look at the legal framework for the war on terror. And I'll stop calling it so-called here. You can just imagine that we're gesticulating quotation marks every time we say it. After the 9-11 attacks, Congress passed what was called the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, the 2001 AUMF. That allowed President Bush to fight, in the authorization's words, those nations, organizations, or persons he determined planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September the 11th, 2001, or harbored such organizations and persons. So a very expansive mandate. The past 20 years have seen US military operations in at least a dozen countries against an array of groups, some of which have no direct ties to the 9-11 attacks. The basis for the vast majority of these operations has still been the AUMF, as a result, the legislative branch, which should provide oversight to the executive's war-making, has been pretty much absent over two decades of war. We're going to talk today about why that's a problem. We're going to talk especially about a report that we have coming out this week on the topic. It's called Overkill, Reforming the Legal Basis for the U.S. War on Terror. We're extremely fortunate to have two hugely knowledgeable people with us today to talk about this. So first, Steve Pomper, who is currently Crisis Group's Interim Chief of Policy. Steve worked as a State Department lawyer in the Bush and Obama administrations and then in the Obama White House. Steve's really been at the sharp end of some of the legal debates that we'll talk about. Steve, welcome on. Thanks so much. And Naz, apart from being my co-host and a Crisis Group director on our board of trustees, is also the founding director of the Harvard Law School's program on international law and armed conflict. She's really one of the world's top experts on the norms, on the practical dimensions of the war on terror, the intersection of counterterrorism and the laws of war. So she's going to play guest this week as much as host. I'd like to take us through quite quickly the Bush years, just to get enough of a story. So 
Let's start in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. President Bush, people probably remember, went in these very sombre scenes to Congress and sought approval for what becomes the war on terror. And the result of that is the 2001 AUMF. Steve, can you sort of say a word or two about what that entailed? Sure. Well, let me just say there were a number of different visions of presidential authority back during the Bush administration. He was surrounded by um, people like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, who felt the presidency had really shrunk during the post-Vietnam era and had very grandiose theories about what the president could do under his own organic authorities. But I think even those people recognize that the way that the sort of U.S. Constitution is structured the president is at the height of his war powers when he has Congress supporting him. Um, and that's because uh, the Constitution actually gives the lion's share of war powers to the Congress. It gives the Congress the power to declare war and it enumerates a whole bunch of other related powers uh, in Article One of the Constitution. The president, under Article Two, has the powers of the commander in chief. And those are traditionally understood to mean among other things, the power to initiate a war if, if that's needed in order to repel a sudden attack on the United States. Over time, that's been broadened, and there have been some uh, efforts by Congress then to sort of curb that, including a resolution in 1973 which says if the, if the president goes to war unilaterally, it doesn't get authorization by Congress within 60 days, then he has to pull back from the fight. So among other things that were probably in the White House's mind back in 2001 were, let's go to Congress, put the president on the firmest possible constitutional footing for this war, make sure that nobody's going to come and tell us that we have to turn it off after 60 days, and let's get the broadest possible authorization we can. And the way they did that was they went to Congress and they actually asked for a statute that would have given the president authority to wage war against individual groups and countries, not only that participated in the September 11th attacks, but for purposes of deterring any future terrorism as well. Congress said, that's too far. We're not willing to give you that broad a writ. But they instead gave him an extremely broad writ that basically said, you can go ahead and use necessary and appropriate force against the 9-11 attackers, people who helped them, people who harbored them, and it's up to you to figure out who they are. You know, the writ extends to the people that you determine are covered by this, by this mandate. It, and the statute didn't include any geographic limits. It didn't include any kind of temporal limits. It was a forever authority uh, and a global writ. And the only thing that really anchored it to a specific event were the, was this 9-11 nexus. Though, as we'll discuss, even that ended up being sort of stretched over time. Uh, that was sort of what was happening on the domestic side. There was a separate conversation in terms of the international legal authority to go to war. I think if you went to most international lawyers back in 2001 and told them, uh, you know, on September 10th, uh, you know, posed them the question, does a country have the right to go to war uh, with a, a transnational terrorist group? Uh, you would not have gotten a uniform chorus of guesses. But after September 11th, people were shocked, the magnitude of the attack I think sort of galvanized some thinking around this. And the Security Council, the UN Security Council, quickly adopted a resolution saying that the attacks were a threat to international peace and security and that invoked the right of self-defense. And the right of self-defense is a pass or a permission slip to go to war under international law. So he had the AUMF, which was this broad writ under domestic law. He had the Security Council speaking about self-defense 
under international law. So he had quite a lot of power in both spheres to, to wage a war that, you know, he could really fashion going into, I would just say, within two weeks of the, of the 9-11 attacks. And so then the Bush administration went into Afghanistan, toppled the Taliban, and in essence began this hunt for al-Qaeda and for, for the Taliban themselves. And the other thing they did was set up this detention facility, this prison in Guantanamo, in this pocket of Cuba. And they brought people from Afghanistan, from other places, suspected of links to al-Qaeda, to Guantanamo. So what, what was the legal basis for that? Well, the AUMF, of course. I, you know, what ended up happening was, and this is the best that I've been able to piece it together, the AUMF became the basis for Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, which was the big U.S.-led operation in Afghanistan, which launched in October uh, 2001. Within a month or so, um, the U.S. was capturing, um, you know, Taliban and al-Qaeda uh, militants. And I, as, as far as I understand, it didn't really have the facilities to hold them inside Afghanistan. They needed a place where they could hold people and they explored different options. I think they looked at Diego Garcia and Wake Island and other places. And then they settled on Guantanamo, which was um, you know, a place where the U.S. had a 100-year lease on what had at one point been a coaling facility at Guantanamo Bay. And in, in terms of the legal authority, the authority was, well, you know, when you're at war, you do certain things. You use force. You use force to, you know, in lethal operations and you use force to capture people um, and interrogate them. So all of this was, I think, you know, under the umbrella of necessary and appropriate force in the AUMF. The other you know, important sort of legal facet about Guantanamo um, was that it was a location outside the United States. And that became incredibly important over the years because one reason that the Bush administration didn't want to bring them into the United States was because a lot of um, legal rights and protections would inhere if that happened. And, and one of the objectives that the president's lawyers had was to make sure that these individuals would have as little claim to rights and protections um, as possible under both domestic and international law. Holding them offshore allowed the lawyers to make claims that these protections didn't adhere because those protections really only applied on the territory of the United States and Guantanamo wasn't part of the territory of the United States. So Richard, this is the first time I think on the podcast that we are spending the entire hour on law and lawyers for better or worse. And Crisis Group, as you said, is about to publish this report, Overkill, which is, in my view, the first almost forensic analysis of the role of particularly U.S. government lawyers in the war on terror story over the entire arc from the early days in the Bush administration all the way up to the Biden administration today. And I think it's going to be of incredible value to the public to journalists and to scholars who are trying to grapple with the legacy of the lawyering that has taken place over these 20 years. And I'm really pleased to be in conversation with Steve, who I think is one of the most thoughtful people on the role of government lawyers and government lawyering in wartime and around questions of conflict. That said, let me push back against some of what Steve said from the international law perspective. So first, I think it's important that we remember that in in the early days, 
there was a very strong contingent of lawyers outside of the administration saying this is not a war. You cannot use war authorities and you should not be using war rationale because Al-Qaeda can be dealt with through criminal law and criminal law enforcement. And we lose that in many ways quickly after 2002, 2003. But I think it is important to recall that there was at the beginning a strong sense that it was inappropriate to think of this as a war and that going down the pathway of war rationales, international law applicable to war, internal domestic war authorities would lead the U.S. and the world down a very dangerous path. Second, I think it's important to remember that international law does not have such a thing as a global authority to use force against individuals anywhere you find them according to the discretion of a single state. There is no such thing as a geographically unlimited authorization for the use of force against a group, against a group of individuals, against anyone. And leaving aside whether that's lawful ever under U.S. law and whether or not the AUMF authorized that, I think the question of whether the Security Council gave an approval or a rubber stamp to the AUMF is a really tricky one. And as Steve knows, there's been quite a lot of debate over whether that reference to self-defense by the Security Council should have been understood as an approval by the Security Council of the U.S. to use force beyond Afghanistan, or whether at the time it was understood to be geographically limited, uh, to be a sort of rhetorical acceptance that the U.S. had been attacked and and an indication by the Security Council that it supported the U.S. in doing something to respond to the violence that had occurred in September 11th, but not, in fact, a legal authorization to use force in any way uh, beyond the immediate uh, territory of Afghanistan and the response to al-Qaeda specifically in Afghanistan. So I think at least at the beginning of this story, there was a sense that what the U.S. was proposing as a matter of international law was clearly unlawful. But I think also important to remember that at this point in the story, it didn't seem as though the Bush administration was going to use force anywhere outside of Afghanistan. I don't think in 2001, 2002, there was much of a sense that this was in fact an authorization to use force globally. And I think Steve is exactly right that the roots of that global authorization actually were in the 2001 AUMF. But I think it's important to remember in 2001, I don't know that we understood it that way. So let me, I'm sorry, Richard, I know we don't want to talk about international law for the whole hour. And, and so I think there was a miscommunication here. Naz, I, I didn't mean to claim that anybody thought 1368 was uh, a uh, foundation for a global war on terror. What I am saying is within 24 hours of the attacks of September 11th, the Security Council had enacted a resolution that appeared 
to put wind in the sails of the idea that the United States could respond to this incident with the use of military force. You know, it said nothing about a global writ. And frankly, when the United States later offered, uh, you know, what I think are pretty thin justifications in some cases for using force in other countries, it didn't go back to 1368 necessarily for anything other than the proposition that, you know, a country can be at war with an armed group like Al-Qaeda. It did establish that principle, and that became very important. People then litigated it. I think the academic community had lots of problems with it, but they didn't articulate those problems in the 24 hours between the September 11th attacks and the council's authorization. So there were legal facts on the ground that were being created very early on when there was a huge amount of sympathy for the situation the United States was in that created an enormous amount of uh, force behind what the United States would come to do. One of those was the Security Council's sort of warm embrace in the 24 hours after the attacks, and the other was Congress's adoption of this you know, statute, which, gave, which did give the president a global writ, frankly. I think that's exactly right. And I think actually that a really critical point here is that there is a way in retrospect that many academics, many journalists, many observers have painted the early Bush era as lawlessness, right? As Guantanamo and the use of force as sort of bad lawyering by characters such as Professor John Yu and others, and an attempt to sort of get beyond the law in order to do whatever the Bush administration wanted to do. And I think the critical point you're making here, Steve, is actually from day one, law was part of the story. And there was absolutely an intention to craft legal interpretations that would authorize and justify what was being done by the administration and what they the flexibility that they wanted for what they might do in the future. Yeah. And then, of course, the Security Council later authorized a mission to operate in Afghanistan. So the International Security Force had a Chapter 7 authorization uh, to go in and and, you know, work alongside Operation Enduring Freedom. So, you know, at least in the very beginning, there was a felt legal comfort zone around what the administration was doing. I think probably there were people like you're describing us who, as they watched this coming together, began scratching their heads and saying, you know, I'm not sure this is going in the right direction. But at least in the beginning, you know, I think there was some, you know, wind in the sails of the Bush administration as it sort of launched this campaign. So let's fast forward then to the Obama administration. Bush, in his second term, had started rolling back some of the excesses of the early years, if if I'm right. So he made some attempt to get people out of Guantanamo uh, to curb some of their renditions, these abductions and extrajudicial transfers of people to Guantanamo, or in some cases to other countries to be interrogated, which which sometimes also involved torture. There were the horrors at Abu Ghraib, uh, these pictures that emerged of people being abused by US personnel in a detention facility in Iraq, which also appears to have contributed to some sort of recalculation. And then Obama comes in uh, wanting to walk some of this back further. And one thing he did shortly after taking office was to say that he was going to close Guantanamo. But quite quickly, from what I understand, he ran into difficulties with what to do with the, the people that were there. Steve, could you say a word or two about kind of how that debate evolved? 
Sure. And I should say, you know, actually, in the second term of the Bush administration, there was a concerted effort to try and get the United States in a better place vis-a-vis allies on issues of international law. I don't think probably the community of sort of hardcore international lawyers in the sort of scholarly world would look at what the United States was doing back then as being especially faithful to international law. But, you know, there was a real effort at international law diplomacy led by my former boss, John Bellinger, who spent a lot of time going to allies and say, and, and, and basically trying to bring them on sides with the U.S. positions. And it was actually fairly successful. I mean, there was a lot of sort of movement towards convergent points. That was the situation that Obama inherited. Sorry, Steve, bring them on side with U.S. positions or make U.S. positions slightly more palatable to those allies? A little bit of both. I mean, this was sort of the role of U.S. government, State Department lawyers. They would go out and they would listen to the things that were the most grating uh, to international lawyers in in other governments. And, and, And a lot of these other governments, frankly, international law was much more central to the way in which they actually administered their sort of national security apparatus than it is to the United States. And so it was really important uh, for purposes of interoperability, for a whole bunch of reasons, to eliminate these sources of friction. Some of the sources of friction were things like, you've embarrassed us by running a rendition flight through our base, and now we're being sued. Or, you know, we need to know what has been happening with these black sites that we've been hearing all about. So that was where things stood basically in 2009. Now, a couple of things were happening at the same time. So on the one hand, you had you know President Obama who had, I think, campaigned fairly effectively against the war on terror. Um, not completely in the sense that, you know, he described Afghanistan as the good war, Iraq was the bad war, and suggested, you know, and that became incredibly consequential. But the, the sort of, the, the, you know, the legacy of torture, of rendition, of creating legal black holes around U.S. operations, around these extraordinary expansive assertions of executive authority, those were all things that Obama, you know, ran against. And when he came into office, I think it was on his second day of office, he actually rolled out three executive orders. One was committing to create a task force that would look at all the Guantanamo detainees. And, but basically the idea was he was going to try and close Guantanamo within a year. Another was a very powerful order on interrogation, which ended abusive techniques that amounted to torture effectively. And the third was something that looked at detention policy and created a task force uh, to come up with some rules there. So, you know, from the perspective of those of us who had been civil servants like I was in the State Department, it was this, you know, breath of fresh air and a real moment of hope. And it seemed like there was a fighting chance that some of the things that we really thought were problematic in the U.S. government's position in the Bush era would go away. And then at the same time, (laughs) um, there was another current that I think maybe the Obama team didn't fully appreciate when they were sort of crafting these orders, which was... The Supreme Court in 2008 had decided a case called Boumediene, in which it recognized the constitutional rights of Guantanamo detainees to contest the legality of their detention uh, through habeas proceedings in U.S. courts. And this was the culmination of a whole sort of string of Supreme Court cases. It was the high watermark of them. Um, But what it did was it opened the floodgates to litigation where The essential question, the merits of these cases, was going to be decided. It was basically telling district courts, you can look into the factual predicates for the detention of these individuals at Guantanamo and tell us whether or not they've been lawfully detained um, as enemy combatants. So that current was running at exactly the same time 
um, the Obama administration was committing to look at the detainee files itself and make determinations about how to let these people out. And in the end, these two currents ended up clashing because you had, on the one hand, you know, this task force that was being set up to try and come up with, you know, mechanisms for placing, deciding who was really dangerous and who wasn't and who could be outplaced and who couldn't. And then you had, you know, the courts sort of not waiting on this executive branch process, but instead saying, you know, we have to hear these cases. So the idea was we're trying to find ways to responsibly transfer these people out of Guantanamo. And at the same time, we were looking at these briefs that were coming in from the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense that asserted these extraordinary claims to be able to continue to detain uh, people who, frankly, hadn't done all that much, you know, when they had been swept up in Afghanistan. Some of them, you know, had stayed in a safe house for a night or two back in 2001 or, you know, uh, had been a driver for, you know, a, a senior, uh, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda official. And the, and the U.S. government was making claims that it could detain them for, you know, for all of time. So, um, it became what, what started out as sort of a hopeful atmosphere, I think, for State Department lawyers became a sort of fraught atmosphere as, you know, we descended into the mosh pit of arguing whether or not these legal claims that were being made in these briefs really stood up as a matter of international law. And this is where the challenge of being an international law, you know, person in the U.S. government really um, became an issue because the fact is there isn't that much international law that tells you who you can detain in an armed conflict with, uh, you know, with a terrorist group. There, there, in fact, there's no real black letter law on it. There's no treaty that, that spells it out. And the courts, you know, sort of were looking at this and wondering, <laughs> you know, how did all this sort of add up? You know, the, the Obama administration came in committing to close Guantanamo. Um, there were all these sort of Bush era theories about detention floating around. How was it all supposed to be sort of reconciled? And they finally, or not finally, but actually fairly early on, uh, one of the judges came to the executive branch and said, you actually have to file a brief and tell us what your position on detention authority is. And there was a famous brief that was filed in March 2009 on March 13th, in which the Obama administration planted its flag on what its detention authority was. And, you know, I think there was a lot of speculation and hope that that, uh, that, that claim for detention authority under the AUMF would be narrower and more judicious than the claims that the Bush administration had made. But in fact, the claim was very close to identical <laughs> to what the Bush administration had been claiming its detention authority had been all along. So Naz, I'd love to ask you about this as well. Right? But at the same time as all this is happening, the Obama administration is escalating quite dramatically its use of drones uh, and targeted killings. It's targeting Al-Qaeda leaders. It's starting to target them in different places, places against which it's not formally at war. And from what I understand, there was a connection between some of the rulings or some of the policies that the Obama administration made on detentions and its legal justifications for some of those targeted killings. Could you talk a little bit about, about that as well? Yeah, it's interesting because I think if you go back to the March 13th brief of Memory Serves, it actually talks about how in making these claims about the U.S. government's detention authority, the government was not saying that these claims would necessarily, you know, determine the contours of who it believed it could target um, in the field. But the, but the actual truth of the matter was that the U.S. government's um, interpretation of its of its authority to target was, I think, very closely overlaid. In fact, it may have been identical to its its theory of who it, 
of, of who we could detain detention. And that was how that was how the executive branch thought about both detention and targeting. It saw them both as um, species of the right to use force. And basically, it, you know, it arrived at the position that if you had the right to use force against somebody, you could either target or detain them. It was, uh, you know, it was it was more or less a sort of discretionary matter as a, as a legal matter. Now, again, you know, you could challenge that in a hundred different ways, but I think that was the, that was sort of the internal thinking. So as, you know, the, as the executive branch made these claims um, about its detention authority, about who it could detain, it was also shaping, I think, the battlefield. And this became particularly important because, you know, picking up on a Bush era concept uh, the March 13th brief claimed the ability uh, not only to go after al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but after what it described as associated forces, uh, which was a term that the March 13th brief didn't define and which I can attest the executive branch didn't really know what it meant at the time. But the idea was you needed some sort of uh, fail-safe or, or catch-all provision um, to, to mop up groups that were seen as being on the battlefield, you know, as well as Al-Qaeda, um, or that were the home organizations of individuals who were at Guantanamo, um, but, you know, were not necessarily forces, were not Al-Qaeda forces, basically. Richard, if I can jump in here, just two thoughts. One, I think the story that Steve is telling really illustrates one of the dangers of thinking about war globally and thinking about the idea of an armed conflict that is not narrowly, clearly, and geographically defined. That one of the, I think Steve is right, unanticipated uh, outcomes of the Guantanamo litigation is that as lawyers were trying to use international humanitarian law in order to introduce constraints, put constraints on what the government could do with detainees, how it could treat them, what kind of due process they could have, who could be detained, they were utilizing the very law that also provides regulations and limitations on targeting and on the use of lethal force in the battlefield. And so it, by conceding in a way that this was a war without geographic limits, by conceding the point that it was an armed conflict, or by seeking to have this be referred to as an armed conflict so that the law of armed conflict would apply and protect detainees in Guantanamo and in other contexts of detention, those arguments and ultimately some of the decisions of the United States Supreme Court ended up also providing a blueprint for how to apply international humanitarian law in targeting operations that went far beyond those that were being considered in the Bush administration. So I think it is a it is important, I think, to emphasize, and I think Steve would agree with me here, this was not a kind of strategic plan to create a set of directions for conducting war everywhere without geographic limits. But in a way, I think the Guantanamo litigation ends up creating arguments and language that become incredibly useful for then later saying these are 
constraints that can apply to targeting operations in a variety of geographic contexts beyond Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and Richard, can I just jump in and make a related point, which is, you know, you have to think about this in terms of the actual progression of, of how the law was being treated in the context of this conflict. So during the Bush era, the first move that the Bush lawyers made was to say, we're in an armed conflict, but we're in an armed conflict with this, you know, nihilistic, you know, jihadist militant group um, that doesn't follow the laws of war. And in fact, if so we're in an armed conflict, we're bound by the laws of war, but the laws of war don't actually um, give us any guidance about how to behave here. Therefore, we can do anything we please. It, just a slight level of caricature there, but not much. Um, and so it seemed at the time like progress to move from that place to the place that said, actually, no, you know, you don't get a full blank check uh, not to follow the laws of war. Certain protections do apply. Um, and, you know, you can't torture your detainees um, and some other, you know, uh, protections. Um, but, you know, that came at a cost, as Nas is saying, because, um, you know, the, the risk was that, okay, you've made a big step forward by imposing some rule of law on the conflict by recognizing that some of these rules do apply, but there are still huge gaps. Um, being in a state of warfare is being in a state of exception. Normal protections of life and liberty um, don't apply. Um, and, you know, there was simply no way, and we really did try to, you know, to construct the kind of framework that would make people really comfortable um, in this space. There was just no way to do it. Um, once you'd sort of crossed over into the war threshold, you know, you were basically saying that the U.S. military could kill people on the basis of their status. And oftentimes you were saying you could kill them on the basis of, you know, what the military thought their status was, because sometimes they didn't really know. Um, so the, the harm that you were opening the door to once you sort of crossed the war threshold was very difficult and if not impossible to manage through law. So I want to come back to some of these arguments at the end, but let's let's look at something else the Obama administration did fairly early on in light of its stepped up use of drones and targeted killings, which was this PPG, Presidential Policy Guidance, which was to try to reduce the number of civilian casualties associated with these drone strikes. Do you want to say a, a little bit about sort of what some of the thinking behind the PPG was? You know, I was not involved in the drafting of the PPG, but basically it goes to a little bit of what we were just talking about. I think there was a sense that because the law in this space is so um, underdeveloped, um, that the U.S. government needed to impose some of its own sort of strictures on on its own operators in order to try and rein them in. Um, and if you read the report, you'll see these quotes, um, you know, from from lawyers and operators who were sort of active at the time, saying it was a little bit of a wild west atmosphere for a period of time during the early Obama administration. You know, the the there was for whatever reason the security apparatus felt. Uh, whether right or wrong, that it needed to take action in some of these um, countries that were not that were not Afghanistan. You know, they were out of theater operations in places like Yemen and Somalia. These were countries where the United States was notionally at peace with the you know with the government and yet dropping bombs on their people. And that obviously um, you know didn't was it did not look good to the international community. It certainly didn't sit well with the local population. It caused all kinds of friction with the governments. And and frankly, there were some really ugly incidents at the beginning of the Obama administration where the targeting information wasn't as good as the highly confident operators uh, thought it was, and there were widespread civilian deaths. So at some level, 
the presidential policy guidance was an effort to try and rein in that situation by creating a very, very rigid bureaucratic process that required these strikes to come up to the White House and be very highly coordinated before action was, you know, was taken. And then it tried also to impose um, certain constraints that, you know, the lawyers could frankly not impose because the U.S., you know, vision of international law, which was a lot more operationally generous, let's put it this way, generous to operators, not so much to victims than U.S. allies, um, because you couldn't get there through legal means, you had to get there through, there through policy means. So um, the, the big innovations were that the president's policy guidance said in order um, to, to, to be targeted, there had to be near certainty that the target was who the operators said that target was, and that uh, innocent civilians were not going to be killed. Um, and um, also that the, the target in question posed a continuing and imminent threat. Um, uh, I can't remember if it was to the U.S. or to U.S. interests. But the, the bottom line was um, to try and impose a set of um, prudential restrictions that went further than the United States vision of international law. But as Nas has written about, um, there was sort of a legal-ish uh, vibe to some, of these, uh, to some of these restraints, particularly the reference the continuing and imminent threat um, was a gesture to the international law of self-defense, um, which says that it's lawful to use force, you know, in the face of an imminent threat. Um, in the end, you know, the, the PPG had, you know, real critics uh, and the criticisms, I think, were fairly legitimate. I, I think, it, you know, it created a sense of comfort around operations inside the U.S. government that may have taken off some of the pressure to just move out of that operational space altogether. The system could be gamed, I think. And I think these prudential constraints could be sort of made more flexible if they needed to be. That was that was my sense of things. Um, so, you know, it's an imperfect system. But on the whole, on the whole, I think it did actually drive down the operational tempo in some of these places and probably did save uh, some lives. So I think in a way, this is where things shift to that earlier authorization and writ that Steve referred to becoming real. So the idea embedded in the AUMF, and I think Steve is exactly right, that it was without limitation, that it was left to the discretion, not just of the United States, of the president to determine uh, how to utilize that authority. Now in 2009, 2010, we see what that looks like when it gets applied to targeting much more broadly. And I think that the question of the presidential policy guidance and what it was intended to do versus what it did has become in some ways partly a question of whether one ought to hold the lawyers responsible for crafting that document responsible for everything that comes with the targeting that purportedly utilized the PPG, probably unfair, and partly a question of what should the role of lawyers be when the state wants to engage in this kind of conduct. So yes, I think that there are many who were involved in the crafting of the PPG who to this day would say, it was meant to constrain operators. It was meant to apply a set of limitations that would not have been applicable through black letter law. And it saved lives. 
that the PPG saved lives because in specific operations, the PPG either said no to certain strikes that operators wanted to engage in, right? Because those operators would say, this is the strike I want to engage in. These are the anticipated civilian casualties. And the PPG would lead higher ups in the chain of command to say, no, that strike is not clear. Or it saved live be- lives because it imposed such stringent constraints on specific strikes that it led to many fewer civilians being killed. I think the other perspective, and it is a it is a dramatically different one, is that the PPG facilitated the expansion of war to countries and territories all over the globe uh, in a way that was unchecked, in a way that was not accountable, and in a way that in, in many instances, and I think the report does a wonderful job of covering this, were not known to the public that they did not realize that their own country was fighting a war in certain places and territories. So how we think about the PPG, how we think about whether or not it was a a bunch of lawyers facilitating and justifying illegal killing, or whether it was an attempt to creatively and nobly utilize tools from law in order to restrain what would have otherwise been a far more expansive and deadly use of force, I think is, is it's a, a question that we continue to grapple with and need to grapple with in order to determine how this broad writ of authority can ultimately be limited. To me, the interesting point here is that I don't actually think the PPG enabled anything. It may or may not have been a useful sort of ancillary justification or may have promoted the sustainability of some of these operations by creating a patina of you know additional humanity that may or may not have been deserved. But I don't think it was seen as really an, an organic source of authority, which actually sort of brings us back to point number one, which is, is the organic source of authority, the sort of root of all the problems that we're talking about, what has allowed uh, you know, the executive branch to continue expanding this war without having a real conversation about it in front of the American people or you know, allowing it to be scrubbed um, you know, by the kinds of arguments that really it has to be scrubbed by if it's ever going to be sort of reined in. The root of all that is the AUMF and the way that, you know, the executive branch has treated it. And if you want to, I think, indict executive branch lawyering, maybe not any specific lawyer, but the whole culture that has allowed these theories to develop um, and acquire a life of their own, I think the focus should be on the AUMF rather than the PPG. So then we come to ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, and ISIS emerges from the remnants of what was al-Qaeda in Iraq. It regroups in Syria, captures this big chunk of territory in the Middle East, and the Obama administration is trying to forge a military response. Now, ISIS in principle was originally connected to al-Qaeda, but then it split and became something different, in fact started sort of competing and and in some places fighting al-Qaeda. And yet the Obama administration goes back to the AUMF to justify the 
whole counter ISIS campaign. Do you want to explain sort of how how that happened? So I to me, this is a big inflection point. And again, this is at this point, I passed out of the legal community into the mercifully into the policy world and didn't have to be parted in these conversations. But you know, uh, sort of picking up again on one of the points Nas is, w- was making, I, you know, the in, of executive branch lawyers become habituated to taking positions that don't sit well with the scholarly community or even always sit well with U.S. allies. And they become used to the idea that, you know, their approach to the law, you know, may be controversial or may not be loved, but, you know, it's at least defensible, um, you know, in a, in a way that they can live with. I think what was interesting about the ISIS case is that it tested that. And the reason for that was this. The executive branch has, as we described, you know, developed a theory for how you could bootstrap new organizations that didn't have a nexus to September 11th into the AUMF. It was the idea that they were associated forces. And the theory there was that an associated force was a co-belligerent of, of al-Qaeda or the Taliban and that it found its way onto the battlefield and was fighting the United States. Uh, the provenance of that theory was a little bit sketchy, but that was the U.S. government's theory. That theory did not work remotely for ISIS, which was a group that was not a co-belligerent of al-Qaeda. In fact, you know, had split off from al-Qaeda. So even under this strained theory of associated forces, there wasn't actually a theory by which the AUMF covered ISIS. So why would the executive branch make an argument that the AUMF covered ISIS? And what we talked about in the report was that the executive branch felt it was a little bit between a rock and a hard place. Um, I'm not, and I would say that by way of explanation, not excuse. But, the, you know, the, of course, we were in this you know, increasingly polarized political environment. Um, the executive branch had gone to Congress to try and get authorization for strikes in Syria in a prior year and been rebuffed. How hard the executive branch was really trying to get that authorization is uh, something that we could talk about separately. I'm not always sure, sure about that because I'm not sure Obama really wanted to take those strikes. But in the case of ISIS, you know, at least the, the lore is that they didn't want to go back and be rebuffed again, that they needed to be able to do this. Now, they could have taken, you know, under the sort of, again, self-dealing theories of the executive branch, they could have, you know, fought a fairly short war, you know, claiming self-defense or some, you know, other national interest against ISIS. But under the War Powers Resolution, they could have only done that for 60 days, at which point they would have been required to pull things back. And in this case, they were contemplating an, a, you know, a, a long war. Um, so they needed a theory that wouldn't require them to go to Congress and that would allow them to fight a war that was you know, well in excess of 60 plus days. So you know, the lawyers group came together and argued about this. And they came up with a theory that basically said that because ISIS um, had branched off at some point from al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, it could never really scrub off that association and was therefore, you know, covered by the AUMF. Um, I don't think they claim that it is covered by the definition of associated forces. I think it's just, um, you know, another theory, another branching of the AUMF. But of course, you know, it's damaging because um, it, it, it's so ad hoc. And when you offer an ad hoc theory, um, it, it both suffers from from its ad hocness, but also from the precedent it sets for further ad hoc theories. So once you sort of break, you know, the carapace of the law and start saying we can start freestyling um, with these kinds of theories, you're really sort of opening the door to, to f- future such theories. And, you know, 
when when we did the forensics on this and started talking about people who were part of the conversations, it emerged, at least according to one source, that nobody thought this was the best available reading of the law. And even people who thought that the U.S. should be in there fighting uh, ISIS militarily uh, didn't think that this legal theory held much water. Yeah, just to add here, I think that the the other way in which this is the rise of ISIS and the, and the use of the AUMF here is critical to the international law story that's kind of running parallel is that this is the moment when another argument that had long been around and had been articulated, the so-called unable unwilling argument really moves in a new direction. So this is where the U.S. argument at the international law diplomacy level is that if a state is unable and unwilling to deal with the terrorist threat emanating from its territory, then the United States would uh, be authorized to use force on the territory of that state, not against that state, but without that state's consent. So just to put that in simple terms, it means that if a state has something going on on its territory, it's not properly controlling that thing, and that thing poses a threat to other states, that those states would be authorized to use force against the threat without the permission of the territorial state on that state's territory. And and here and with Syria, we see that argument take on, uh, a, for some of us, a, a concerning and terrifying new direction, which is that the it appears that... Um, there was not a robust conversation with the Syrian government prior to the decision to use force on the territory of Syria. And of course, there are many good political reasons for that. But as a matter of international law, the the campaign against ISIS also brings a argument regarding the legality of the use of force itself that potentially points in an even more expansive direction. We'll come to Trump in a moment, but just very quickly on the the counter ISIS campaign. So, you know, it took a while to get going, but then this sort of US built coalition, the Kurdish led SDF in Syria, uh, an array of Iraqi army divisions and uh, Iran backed militias and other militias and US special forces in Iraq, backed by enormous air power, start taking back. ISIS-controlled areas. And there's enormous destruction. Cities just pretty much raised. And part of that, of course, is ISIS uh, hiding people among civilians, its own destruction. But part of that is that very heavy reliance on air power. I mean, how does that then relate to the way that the Obama administration was thinking about civilian casualties and some of the stuff it had done with the, with the PPG? Well, they decided the PPG didn't apply in Syria. Um, the idea was the PPG was meant to apply to... Um, zones outside theaters of active hostilities. So the idea was if you're in a, in a normal shooting war, um, which you know, the counter-ISIS campaign was deemed to be, notwithstanding the legal fragilities that Naz and I um, you know, were talking about, um, that you, know, you didn't want the White House leaning over the Department of Defense telling them every time that they could drop a bomb. But no, the civilian casualty protections under the PPG were not they were not applicable in Syria. That was a decision that was made at the beginning of the campaign. There was an exercise in 2016 to extend sort of the civilian casualty policy um, and articulate it in a more formal way, in a way that applied both to off-battlefield and battlefield locations. And there was an executive order uh, that, um, that Obama rolled out 
uh, I can't remember, it was, it was fall 2016, that talked about, you know, a policy of doing everything possible to, you know, mitigate civilian casualties, but it didn't, it didn't contain the same kind of hard standards um, that, uh, that the PPG had in it. It was more, um, it was at a higher level of generality. One of the things, Richard, that I think is really important, though, about the sort of whole civilian casualty space was the, the, the I don't know if it's inability or, or if it reflects a sort of lack of prioritization, but the U.S. government is just not very good. Um, the military is not very good at understanding the consequences of its actions on the ground. Um, and it projects a lot of confidence around you know, knowing, you know, who it's, it's killed and the level of civilian harm um, in ways that, you know, tend to, in certain circumstances, be undercut by later reporting. And we just saw an instance of this in the sort of Kabul strike, you know, the ostensibly counter ISIS strike uh, in Kabul um, that through New York Times reporting was revealed to be a hit on an aid worker uh, and his family. You know, the, 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 the military apparatus has a way of, of projecting certainty around things that then later aren't borne out by the facts. And when, you know, you, ha you can have a nice sounding civilian casualty policy, but it often clashes with the reality of war. You know, when the U.S. is going in and doing the kind of campaign it was doing in Iraq and Syria, it's very hard for them to know how many civilians they're killing. And, you know, they're not especially open uh, to people on the ground coming to them and telling them, uh, you know, you got this wrong. In fact, look at, you know, look at the consequences of your action. One of the lessons that I took away from my time in government, and it was just reinforced by what happened in Kabul, is, you know, if you open the door to the use of this very blunt instrument, it had better be worth it because, the negative consequences that are going to flow are inevitable. They cannot be controlled and they can be terribly ugly. And so then we move on to Trump and you know, a few things sort of happen under under Trump. We talked about some of these these last week. I mean, he comes to office and ISIS is a sort of big was a big focus of his campaign. In reality, he sort of carries on the counter ISIS campaign in Iraq and Syria, sort of where Obama left off. He also eases some of the restrictions. He abolished the PPG the presidential guidance that we talked about. And despite all the noise he makes about ending forever wars, he actually appears to have sort of continued or even expanded some of the sort of light footprint operations, what become partnered operations working with other states in far-flung war zones against other Al-Qaeda or ISIS affiliates. So do you want to just say a, a kind of word or two about whether there, were, there was anything that was relevant in the legal framework that happened under Trump? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, so first of all, I think when when both Donald Trump talks about ending endless wars and when, frankly, Joe Biden talk about ending endless wars, they are talking about um, heavied up operations, you know, land wars uh, in the Middle East, essentially. Um, and there, I mean, I think, you know, both Trump and Biden, you know, they didn't, they didn't, well, Trump didn't finish the job, but he certainly moved in the direction of, of reducing the United States ground presence around the world. I mean, he did it in Somalia. He, you know, made an effort in Syria, um, and he set the terms of withdrawal in in Afghanistan. And I do think he thought, either as a matter of policy or political calculation, that these weren't serving U.S. interests. But that's not the same thing in either case as saying you're going to end the use of force for counterterrorism operations. In terms of rules that the Trump administration. Um, got rid of and followed. I mean, one of the things that Trump had sort of threatened to do during the campaign was to sort of roll back to the, you know, worst excesses of the 
Bush administration and then, you know, up the ante. So he was going to do, you know, waterboarding or even worse, um, you know, and, and he had, it was just, you know, disgusting um, commitment to sort of undermining uh, international humanitarian law. In the end, um, I don't think the operating agencies had any interest in that. Um, it was just, it would have been no use to them and, you know, a world of legal exposure. And he didn't end up going in that direction. The way in which he sort of undermined IHL was by, you know, pardoning or giving clemency uh, to, you know, charged war criminals um, and, and things like that. Uh, so he sort of gestured in that direction, but didn't actually, you know, take those steps. Um, but he did, you know, uh, he did, as you say, you know, uh, get rid of the PBG. He replaced it with his own set of standards uh, called the PSP um, that, you know, were much looser, gave operators a lot more flexibility, um, loosened up the standards. I don't know that we know fully what all the new standards were because um, it was pretty heavily classified. But the op tempo did increase. Um, so there were more strikes uh, under Trump um, than there were under Obama. And, uh, and civilian casualties increased as a result. This then brings us on to the Biden administration uh, and the counterterrorism review that you mentioned. So what does it look like the the direction of that's going to take? Is it just going to be about the sort of PPG-esque constraints to try to reduce civilian casualties? Or is it going to be a broader look at the, the, the whole authorization for the war on terror? Well, the reporting that we've done suggests it's going to be a fairly narrow look. And I should be a little bit qualified here because, you know, the Obama administration, I mean, the Biden administration, forgive me, is doing several policy reviews, you know, and they're, they're happening in parallel. So it's doing a, you know, a review of the global force posture at the same time as it's doing a counterterrorism review. And I'm not sure we know fully what topics are going to be picked up where and, you know, how, but the way in which it's come back to us, at least, is that the counterterrorism review is primarily occupied with um, questions about process, you know, how decisions are going to be made, um, you know, with regard to lethal targeting and um, whether or not you go back to the full set of safeguards and processes that were, you know, implemented by the PPG or whether, you know, you sort of walk a middle line and move back towards uh, or, or and stay with some elements of the Trump processes, which the operators much preferred because, you know, they involved fewer uh, non-military civilians in, in these decisions. I think one of the questions is whether or not um, the review will look at so-called partnered operations. Um, these are operations where the U.S. troops are out in the field um, to advise, assist, and accompany uh, forces who the U.S. is trying to groom into proxies in its counterterrorism efforts. And sometimes those missions go um, wrong, and U.S. troops end up getting pulled into firefights. And so the question, I think, is some people are asking, well, shouldn't they be part of this CTE review as well? There's some resistance to that, I think, on the part of the operating agencies, and I'm not sure how that's going to be resolved. But but the big questions, the kinds of questions that would come up, you know, in a, uh, a full-pitched uh, legislative exercise to consider whether or not the 2001 AOMF uh, really works anymore and to sort of narrow it to focus on specific groups or specific countries or specific missions. Those kinds of questions where you're sort of asking fundamental, uh, you know, points about 
whether or not the use of force is actually doing more harm than good and really examining what the harm and what the good is uh, in that context. I don't know that we've been told that those issues are being examined in the CT review, um, which isn't surprising um, uh, because you know, you're bringing together different entities within the government, some of whom have an interest in talking about these things, and some of them who you know, are very happy to keep on going as they're going and don't want to have that conversation at all. And that's why you really do need to bring in another branch of government to force that conversation. And can I just, just push on that? I mean, it, you know, one of the things that we recommend in the, in the report is that Congress itself should sort of come up with an idea for overhauling the 2001 AUMF that, you know, it's sort of given up its oversight role and, and it should sort of reclaim that. But do we really think that greater congressional oversight is going to make for more sensible policy? It could. And I think we have to move in that direction because, you know, we can't expect government to function better unless we place higher expectations on it. And right now, Congress has been given a free pass for now decades um, from exercising responsible authority over matters of war and peace. Now, any responsible conversation about this issue has to recognize that Congress authorized the biggest foreign policy debacles of you know, the post-war war world. It authorized the Vietnam War and the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, maybe not the full, you know, ambit of the war, but certainly elements of it. Um, and it authorized the Iraq War. And so authorization exercises don't always constrain the executive branch in ways that, you know, retrospectively we wish it, that, that they had. But if you structure the authorization exercise in the right way, I think over time you can create pretty good odds that it will pull the U.S. in the right direction. And one way in which this can happen is by developing a practice whereby these authorizations have time limits on them. Every two or three years, Congress should be forced to you know, vis- revisit whether or not the decision it made last time uh, was a good one um, and reauthorize or not reauthorize. And I think that's how you, know, you can make sure that, that members of Congress understand that they're going to be held accountable for the kinds of votes that they're taking. And you make sure that you know, a war doesn't just go on endlessly on autopilot. Um, which is what has happened with this, um, with this, uh, with the AUMF and the twenty-year war that we're now fighting. Um, so no, there's no guarantees, um, but I think the bet is that by opening things up, by having a public debate, by you know changing the way in which Congress legislates around these issues, so that there is this presumption that um, that uh, that authorizations sunset and have to be reauthorized, that you create an atmosphere um, where facts can be brought to bear, and, and frankly, where organizations like ours can sort of bring to Congress what we are seeing from the field in terms of the impact of U.S. operations and and the extent to which it is either helping or harming U.S. interests. And the the last thing I would say, Richard, is, um, you know, Congress can change. So with regard to the Yemen conflict, for example, I think back in 2015, when the Obama administration was getting involved in the first place, um, there was a lot of pressure from from Congress to, to go in, to help the Saudis, to help the Emiratis. But over time... Um, Congress became, I think, leery of the costs of that engagement much faster than the executive branch did. And it was action by Congress that actually pulled the U.S. back from its role in that conflict before anything the executive branch did. So, um, you know, there is a history of it providing a useful check and balance, at least in that context. So I wanted to end with a question about a uh, recent book by Samuel Moyne, who I think I think is a law professor at Yale. And it's called uh, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and, and Reinvented War. 
And I think if I can sum up this right, it's some of the rules that we've been talking about that are in place to curb civilian suffering during war. Now, it could be international humanitarian law, the PPG, for example. They've sort of sanitized conflict and made it easier to perpetuate. Can I ask what you make of that argument? Well, I think it was it was the intent. If you look back, for example, at the civilian casualties executive order um, that Obama enacted in 2016 or the speech that he made at the end of his first term when he was rolling out the PPG, I mean, he talks about, you know, wanting to make these operations more sustainable. Now, um, Moyne is focused, I think, in his book on um, creating political space um, within the American public. And I think he's actually mostly talking about um, the policy elite uh, here in in the U.S. And the idea that um, by injecting a level of humanity and the rule of law, um, you know, successive administrations have taken some of the heat that they might have otherwise been feeling and created more space to continue the war. Um, I think the way that the administration looked at it um, from a policy perspective was at least as much from the perspective of, you know, creating space internationally. And, you know, the idea that if you were trying to operate in a country with the cooperation of its government, you had to be pretty careful not to be creating horrible incidents of civilian death because um, that was just going to, you know, create bigger problems. And then I do also think there was a sense, you know, nobody wanted to be associated with uh, the killing of of civilians. Where the book, um, I think, is probably, you know, generated more controversy um, is in the way that it attacks specific humanitarians um, for the actions that they took um, during, you know, during the war on terror. And the most controversial is that he posthumously attacks a guy named Michael Ratner, um, who won this sort of miraculous Supreme Court decision in 2004 that allowed Guantanamo detainees access to the courts. And the implication of that conversation in the, in the Moyne book is that, you know, Ratner, rather than filing, you know, petitions before the courts should have been, you know, using his skills to try and attack the war itself. I think the problem with that line of argument is, and this has been raised by others, there really weren't legal channels for, you know, for, for Ratner to do uh, what Moyne is asking of him. You know, one might have arguments that the international legal basis for the war was was pretty shaky, um, but it was on very solid at least the war in Afghanistan and Iraq were both authorized by Congress pretty clearly. So there wasn't really a way to come at it. And so um, the attack on, on Ratner, without being able to make the case that, uh, that, that he could have been using his talents uh, more effectively on something else, and also without being able to make the case that the real sustainability of the war in the United States was due to you know, its humanity, whereas I think probably it owed more to the fact that light footprint operations, you know, generate fewer American casualties and are just less visible uh, to the American people. You can't make the case that, you know, it really made it more sustainable politically in the United States or that Michael Ratner could have been doing more, you know, more. That part of the argument sort of collapses. And, and that that's the complaint about the book. But I think the broader themes that, you know, he's articulating are, you know, are, are probably more or less right. And they resonate with a lot of things that we've been saying here. So, Richard, I think um, there's there's a huge amount of commentary being generated by Moyne's book and a number of reviews. And I think somewhat unfortunately, so far, the loudest debate seems to be over the 
individuals that Moyne discusses and the critique of the Guantanamo lawyering that Steve and I were discussing earlier. I, I agree that I think the most important thing about Moyne's book is that it seems to be generating a public debate outside of the small community of lawyers that think and talk and work on these issues about U.S. participation in warfare over the last 20 years. And I think for me, if that is what the book achieves, then that is the victory there. Because I think we can all agree that public debate about war and peace in the United States is pathetic right now. There has been more coverage of Afghanistan in the last few weeks, focusing on the airport and the attempts of people to leave than in the last five years as the war in Afghanistan took shifts and moves that would, of course, create this moment. Uh, We have a public that is, by and large, completely disconnected, both from the civilians whose lives are being impacted by the wars we are conducting and from the people who serve in the armed forces and are carrying out the very orders that are shaped by things like the PPG and IHL and all of these other rules. And so I think that the real story here, it comes back to what Steve said about the AUMF. The real story here is that for 20 years, we have been authorizing more and more war in more and more places on the basis of an authorization in 2001 without a robust political and public debate regarding whether or not this country should be involved in those wars and with a Congress that has largely taken itself out of the conversation. And so to the extent that I think Moyne's book sheds a light on that and to the extent that it also sheds a light on some of the legal debates that have been also taking place, perhaps not behind closed doors in the same way as classified conversations in government, but behind a veneer of expertise and legalistic language and obscure references that are very difficult for many other people to engage with or to even desire to engage with. So I think if we are... um, if we are entering into a phase of a, of a painful and uh, sometimes controversial reckoning with the decisions that have been made in the last 20 years, but also the legal advice that has been given regarding those decisions, that seems to me like a positive development. What do you make of the argument itself that, broadly speaking, efforts by activists and lawyers to humanize or, or sanitize, as Moyne says, in essence, to uh, reduce human suffering during war, including potentially trying, trying to get leaders to respect international humanitarian law, that those efforts run the risk of, of actually perpetuating conflicts. I think he says that the decline of brutal war turned out to be intimately related to the rise of endless war. I should say that this is obviously an argument aimed at a certain audience in the US and and in reality, certainly in our perspective, many wars today are extremely brutal. I mean, if you look at what's happening in 
in, in Tigray, for, for example, if you want one striking example. And the level of brutality, I don't think, has much bearing on their longevity, at least not in the sense of creating domestic political or public pressure on leaders to stop fighting. But looking just at the US and, and the war on terror, Naz, w- w- what do you make of that argument? There's a difference between saying, let's reflect on what has happened Let's reflect on our own role in what has happened and let's understand that there are moments when hyper-technical debates about treatment of detainees, hyper-technical debates about targeting and status and weaponeering can draw attention away from whether or not you ought to be fighting at all. That, I think, is a really important conversation that we are not having as a country. I think it is much more difficult to make a causal argument saying that the effort to impose constraints on warfare and limitations on what parties to armed conflict can do in warfare leads to more warfare. Naz, thanks so much. And Steve, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Richard, thanks so much for having me on. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say one further thing, which is I want to give credit to our new colleague, Brian Finucane, who is responsible for the body of research that we just talked about uh, and a major contributor to the report that will be coming out later this week. And we're just really grateful for his efforts and congratulations on a banner debut here at Crisis Group. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including all our work on the post-9-11 wars, on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick. And thanks, of course, to you, our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating, or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.